Well, go ahead and take a seat. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Rob, and I'm on the pastoral team here at St. Pete's. Uh, and whether you're a guest with us or uh, whether you've been with us for some time, uh, whether you are exploring faith or you're new to faith or whether you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time, uh, we want you to know that we are really glad that you are here with us today, both in this room, and it's great to see people in the room, and also with you who are watching online today, too. Uh, thanks for joining us at home, too. Um, also, Happy New Year. Uh, after taking a break for Advent, we are returning to our very long series going through the Gospel of Luke, which will be in from now until Lent. Um, and in our passage this morning, we're going to look at two stories, two occasions where Jesus comes face to face with death, and how he responds to the presence of death with the miraculous gift of life. And the big idea I hope we will draw from these two stories today is, is this. As the Lord of life, Jesus approaches us with his gift of life. As the Lord of life, Jesus approaches us with his gift of life. And we'll unpack this today by looking at three things. Miracles, prophetic patterns, and Jesus' approach. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some out in the lobby, which you're free to, to take with you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take one of those with you as a gift from us to you. Uh, you can also take out your phone and illumine your face with the warm brightness of a screen, and everything will be on the screen behind me too. Uh, but beginning in verse 1, we read, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. This centurion would have been a commander of a Roman battalion. He was an important military figure, and would have commanded about 100 soldiers under him. As a military leader in his time, he would have been quite wealthy and well-off. And from some of the other details we get in this story, he also seems to have been quite a philanthropist. He helped pay for the local public amenities in Capernaum, including a place where people could come and gather to worship. We also see that he had servants. He had one servant in particular who he really valued. We could even say that this servant was precious to him. The word they use here in the Greek is the same word you would use to describe precious stones, like diamonds and gems. For whatever reason, this servant was important to the centurion. I'm reminded of Mr. Bates in Downton Abbey and how the Earl of Grantham confides in him as his personal valet. Men who had fought alongside each other in the war and in the trenches and who held a sacred bond of trust. But this precious servant is also very ill. He was bedridden and lingering on death's doorstep. In verse 3, we read, When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion heard about Jesus and how he was not only this moral teacher of his day and age going around, but how he was also a worker of miracles. He had heard reports about how he had healed people from leprosy and how he had healed a paralyzed man so that he could walk again. Jesus had cast out demons and had performed miracles all around him. And the centurion heard about this. And he thought to himself, well, if he can do that for them, maybe he can do that for my servant too. 
And so he asked some of his local Jewish leaders to go talk to Jesus on his behalf, to ask if Jesus could come to him and help his servant too. The word they use here is, it carries with it this idea of rescuing and saving. Like when you rescue someone from a shipwreck or to escape a dangerous situation. It's to bring someone out of danger and deliver them into safety. The centurion was asking Jesus to come and deliver his servant from danger, to rescue him from the point of death. He was asking Jesus to come and cure him, to heal him and make him well. And as we read the rest of the story, we see that Jesus listens to them, and he comes. And there are some other details in this story which we'll return to a little bit later. But at the end of the day, Jesus heals the servant. And in verse 10, we read, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. They found the servant well. Now, that's kind of like a British understatement. If you ever ask me or Lloyd how our food tastes, and we respond, oh, it's fine. What we mean is that it's good. And it might even be more than just good. It might be delicious. But as an Englishman and as a Scotsman, it's in our DNA to, be, to understate every single thing we ever say. And so when we simply say, it's fine. They found the servant well. It's an understatement. The person who just a moment before was bedridden and lingering on death's door, now he's physically healthy. They didn't return to find a man gasping for breath on the edge of his bed. No. They found him doing jumping jacks and dancing around the house. He wasn't just fine. He was in, in beyond excellent condition. The servant was on the brink of death, and Jesus, the Lord of life, gave him the gift of life, and the servant was healed. Now, when we read this story, we might overlook a few details. We could miss the significance of Jesus healing someone from a different ethnic background. Or we could miss the significance that Jesus heals the servant from a distance without even seeing him or touching him. We could even miss how Jesus and the centurion both upend the prevailing worldview of their day of status and patronage, and instead push that to the side in the pursuit of the economy of God's grace and mercy. And each one of those things is worthy of a sermon of their own, which is why our sermon series through Luke has been so long already. But even if we overlook these details, there's one thing in this story that we cannot miss. It's one thing which we come face to face with, no matter what we do when we read, and it's the claim that Jesus performed Miracles. It's almost like whack-a-mole. Miracles pop up everywhere throughout the Gospel of Luke, and they pop up everywhere in our passage today. Throughout Luke, we see Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, and raising the dead to life. And most importantly, Jesus raises himself to life. What are we to make of all this? Hasn't science given us a better way to understand the world? Before Christmas, I was chatting with Richard Sandlin, about this. And for those of you who haven't met Richard yet, there was a giggle in the room because most of you, a number of us have met Richard. Uh, Richard's been a part of St. Pete's since very early on. Uh, and over the last few months, he's also been helping fill the uh, mat leave position for a ministry coordinator. Um, Richard also happens to have a PhD in philosophy from UBC, which makes him a very good person to chat with about this. Just he can also go way over your head. 
uh, as we were chatting though, Richard said to me, one of the most important questions for today is, is naturalism true? I used to think it was true, but now I don't. Next to Richard Sandlin, I found C.S. Lewis to be a very helpful conversation partner to engage and wrestle with this question. C.S. Lewis was the professor at Oxford, and while he's probably better known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, he was also one of the most important Christian thinkers of the 20th century. And what I'm about to share comes from his book called Miracles. Uh, and if you want to dig into this more yourself, uh, I think this is one of the best books you can read on the topic. Uh, in his book Miracles, C.S. Lewis explains that some people believe that nothing exists except nature. I call these people naturalists. Others think that, besides nature, there exists something else. I call them supernaturalists. He goes on to explain that for naturalists, nature means everything or whatever there is in existence. And therefore, nothing else can exist except for only those things which are natural. When we invoke the claim that scientific understanding has explained away the supernatural, it's because the disciplines which explore how to make sense of the world around us presuppose a naturalistic worldview. Now, C.S. Lewis points out that there's a few problems with some of these assumptions. He goes on to say, if naturalism is true, we have no reason to trust our conviction that nature is uniform. It can be trusted only if quite a different metaphysics is true. That is, if the deepest thing in reality, the fact, which is the source of all other facthood, as a thing in some degree like ourselves. If it is a rational spirit and we derive our rationality, rational spirituality from it, then indeed our conviction can be trusted. In effect, C.S. Lewis is saying that if naturalism is true, then we can't actually trust our rational minds to have developed from an irrational process. It also means that we can't logically trust our experience of nature to be uniform. Lewis, in turn, argues that our reason and experience of reality can only be trusted if it is derived from a rational spirit, God himself, who exists outside of the natural order. Now, I would love to keep going on about this because I actually find it really interesting. Uh, and I've only shared just a small part of C.S. Lewis's argument. Uh, but this is not a philosophy lecture. Uh, if this interests you, Richard Stanley gives philosophy lectures and he'll talk your ear off about it. Uh, I'd also encourage you to dig into C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, to learn more. And I'll be happy to chat with you more, too. All that to say, Jesus performed a miracle. Because as God incarnate, nature bends to his will. It bends to his word, that very word that called it into existence in the first place. The servant was on the brink of death. And Jesus approached him and speaks and gives him the gift of life. The second thing I want to turn our attention to is that these two stories in Luke are not just about miraculous events, but they fit a prophetic pattern. Look with me again at Luke chapter 7. In verse 11, we read about another time Jesus approached death with the gift of life. In verse 11, we read, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gates of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, 
and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This happened shortly after Jesus healed the servant. He traveled a few days south to go to the town of Nain, and he's got an entourage of people with him now following. But then they turn a corner, they come around a bend, and they see another crowd. They walk straight into this other crowd, which is somber and crying, weeping and mourning. It's a funeral procession. We're told that a young man had died. He was his mother's only child, and she was already a widow. She was a widow and had just lost her only son. Yet this wasn't just the death of any loved one. And this wasn't the only death faced by this family. This was the death of the last loved one. She was already a widow, but now she had become an orphaned parent. And as she trudged along with the processional to bury her son, the emptiness of loss would have been overwhelming. And not only the emptiness of death, but also the emptiness of hope and security. Because now she was all alone and had no one else to support her and to take care of her. The grief would have been indescribable. It's a tragedy when anyone dies. And many of us know that firsthand. In the last year, many of us have experienced the grief which comes from the death of a loved one. The death of any loved one is indescribable. Last summer, we ran a course on grief, and it was hard, but it was beautiful. In one of the videos in the course, they explain that grief disorients us. The experience of grief disorients us in our lives and in the world around us. Grief, they said, is the presence of absence, and it hurts. And the truth is that a lot of people don't really know what to do with grief. I know that I didn't when I experienced it. And when I have experienced it, I still struggle to know what to do with grief. And I want to say, if you're in that place of grief right now today, whether because someone you love has died, or because of the death of a dream, or the loss of a community, or any other reason that causes you to experience the presence of absence in your life, I'd just like to say two things. The first is this. Grief is not a sign that God is upset with you. Grief is not a sign that God is upset with you. And it is not a sign that there is something wrong with your faith. Grief is a needed experience in the face of loss. Second, you don't have to grieve on your own. Grief is a journey, and it's a journey best traveled with others. This is a community that can walk with you through the journey of grief. And I know that firsthand. Four years ago, this community cared for me as I was going through a very, very deep season of grief in my life. You can reach out to any of the pastors here or anyone else in our community. We'd love to connect with you. You can also find other ways to receive care on our website. If you go to stpf.ca slash care, or just go through our website, look for the care tab, and you can find all these resources to learn of ways to receive care in your life. But please know that you don't have to carry it on your own. Fortunately for the woman in this story, she didn't have to carry it on her own. We're told that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. The whole community was there to bear her grief and to grieve with her. 
She was not overlooked by her community. There were others there to mourn, and she was not alone. And as the funeral procession came out of the town and moved towards the cemetery, Jesus and his followers saw them. We're told in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus didn't just glance at her and at what was happening. Jesus saw her. A seeing of substance and fullness, of depth and clarity. Jesus saw her, widowed and an orphan mother. He saw her, and in seeing her, he felt compassion for her. He allowed his heart to enter into this pain. It says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Now, that's probably up there as one of the worst things you could say to someone who's mourning. Do not weep. Um, And in the course we do on grief, they actually explicitly say, don't say that to someone. Uh, We need to experience the healing value of tears. But I suppose when when you're God, uh, from time to time, you can break the rules of grief care. Jesus can say these words to someone. I can't. And Jesus can say these words to someone because of what he's about to do next. In verse 14, we read, Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Once again, Jesus approaches death with the gift of life. Jesus halts the procession, touches the coffin, and speaks to the dead man. He calls to him and says, arise. And the dead man sat up and started speaking. Not just a groan or a sigh, but speaking. Like it was, he was finishing the sentence he began just before he drew his last breath. The once dead boy was now alive and well. More than well. He was singing and laughing. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus approached him. He speaks and gives him the gift of life. And it was so. He was raised from the dead. Now, for the people who witnessed these events, in their context and in the the stories and the imagination that they had, they would have immediately thought of two biblical stories. They would think of the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And they would think of how Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead. And now Jesus is doing the exact same thing before their eyes. It's the kind of thing that prophets do. And in the previous story with the centurion, people would think about Elijah's protege, Elisha. And they remember how Elisha healed Naaman, a foreign soldier. And so when Jesus heals a foreign centurion and his servant who are Gentiles, they would think, this is the kind of thing that prophets do. And if you look closely at these stories, there are so many parallels between them. It's undeniable that Jesus is acting a whole lot like Elijah and Elisha. He's acting like a prophet. And not just a prophet, but he's acting like the greatest prophets in Israel's history. No wonder we read in chapter 7, verse 16, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. But Jesus isn't just trying to prove he's a prophet. 
He's not simply the newest and latest great prophet long line of tradition. And he's not the final Elijah-like prophet that Israel was expecting before the Messiah came, as some of them would have thought. Here's what sets Jesus apart from Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha both had to appeal to God and call out to God to come and intervene and intercede. But Jesus doesn't have to ask God before he heals the servant or raises the child. Jesus simply speaks, and the servant is healed. And he speaks, and the boy is raised from the dead. You see, Jesus is far more than just another prophet of God. Jesus is God himself, appearing among us. Elijah and Elisha depended upon God's power to heal through them, but Jesus heals with his own power. The miracles in these two stories are meant to help us see that Jesus is none other than the Lord himself, the Lord of life. He is able to speak and give life, and he has come to give this gift of life to a desperate world. As we've walked through our passage so far, we've seen how Jesus gives them the miraculous gift of life. And we've seen how the prophetic patterns of Jesus' miracles reveal him to be the Lord of life. And as we end, I want to look at Jesus' approach as he comes and gives the gift of life. When Jesus approaches the funeral procession, we're told in verse 14, then he came up and he touched the bier. When it says that Jesus came up and approached the bier, the word they use in the Greek is a very particular construction. And it appears in a few other places in the Bible. But every other time when it's specifically referring to Jesus approaching someone, when Jesus gets to that person, he always acts with authority. To say that differently, on certain occasions, Jesus would have a specific manner of approaching someone which indicated he was going to act with divine authority. Jesus approached them with the intention to do something. Jesus deliberately approached them as the Lord of life, and he reached out towards them with his gift of life. But notice that when Jesus approached the centurion and his servant, when Jesus approached the widow and her son, neither the centurion nor the widow had done anything to deserve his visit. The centurion sent a delegation of Jewish leaders to speak to Jesus. And they came to Jesus and pleaded with him to come and heal his servant. In verse 4 they say, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. But then the centurion sends some other people to go speak with Jesus, and through them he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and my servant may be healed. Jesus didn't approach the centurion and his servant because he was worthy or good enough. The centurion's testimony proves it. The centurion says that he wasn't worthy for Jesus to even come under his roof. And Jesus didn't approach the centurion because he had enough faith. In the passage, it does go on to say that Jesus marveled at the man's faith. But that was after Jesus had already started approaching him. Jesus was already coming towards the man before the man said anything about his faith. And if we look at the widow and her son, the widow didn't even send anyone to go speak to Jesus. She didn't ask Jesus to come and help. 
Rather, Jesus pursued her on his own accord. See, Jesus doesn't approach us with the gift of life because we deserve it. Jesus doesn't approach us with the gift of life because we have enough faith. No. We've done nothing to deserve his gift of life. We don't need to conjure up enough faith for Jesus to come and meet us. We don't have to clean up our act before Jesus can come and heal us. Jesus is the Lord of life. And he approaches us with his gift of life because he sees us and he loves us. And because he chooses to. And he moves towards us with the gift of life. And sometimes that gift of life looks like the power to heal and cast out demons and raise the dead. Other times, it doesn't quite look like that. Or maybe we don't actually see what's happening. But he always moves towards us with his gift of life. The gift of fullness of life in him. That's why he came to earth as a baby. That's why he died on a cross. That's why he rose to life on the third day. And that's why he's given us his Holy Spirit. And that's why one day he's coming again. Because he's the Lord of life. He's the Lord outside the natural realm. He made all things and he sustains all things and he's remaking all things. Jesus is the Lord of life and he approaches us with his gift of life. And we are invited to open our hands wide and to receive it. We can bring him our needs like the centurion did. And we may be surprised how he comes towards us and comes to meet us in those needs which we haven't even named or brought towards him like the widow. But whether or not we see his life break through with miracles of healing here and now, he promises to share his eternal life with us when we die. He freely gives us the gift of eternal life and the promise that we will be made whole on the last day. So let's come to him today with our arms open wide. Let's ask him to come, recognize that he approaches us as the Lord of life to give us the gift of his life. Let's open our hands today and receive it from him. Will you pray with me?